following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Let's please pray and ask God to illuminate his word to us. And this time we're also going to pray for uh, those members who are not with us today. Uh, pray for God to care for them and deliver them back to us soon. So let us pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your instructions, for your compassion, for the great love that you show for us in scripture. Thank you for both the, the simplicity of what you teach, which is often so clear, uh, but yet also the great depth and complexity that you have provided for us to explore and, and even begin to understand. Um, thank you that all of that points to, to one day having full communion with you, where we will know you and be with you, and many of these things that are not clear will become clear. We, we anticipate that day eagerly. Um, so please, as I preach today, Give all of us the necessary sharpness of mind and softness of heart to understand your word and to allow it to cause us to love you more. Lord, we also pray for those members who are not among us today, whether for illness or recently having a baby or even for reasons of sin. We, we ask that all of those who belong to Foundation would return to us soon, and we are grateful for the safety of those who were away and are now returned. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is the eighth and final sermon in the thematic series of Genesis, which I have been working through. We had four sermons back in March, and this is the fourth of four now here in September. If you've been with us, you will recall that we're working through Genesis sort of in big chunks, and in each chunk of Genesis, we are drawing out of it uh, one theme. We learn from that theme things about God and things about us. We see how that theme is present in the rest of Scripture, and then we find how it is fulfilled in Jesus. So throughout Genesis, we have looked at the theme of garden, of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, salvation through judgment, the nations all coming to the Lord. We have looked at covenant. We have looked at the special role that God has for women in his redemptive story. We've looked at the topic of firstborn. And now today, for our final sermon in this series, I'm going to do something slightly different than I have done with any of those other ones. The theme today is a little bit less of a theme, and it's actually more of a kind of a theme. And so unlike all of the other sermons, uh, I'll be doing this one in a different order and a different structure, uh, but hopefully still easy enough to follow along today. I want to introduce you, perhaps, or maybe you've already heard this word before, to something called typology. So not to be confused with typography, although you will see why they're related. Typography is the study of arranging printed letters, like letters being a certain distance from one another and the font and size of printed documents. And Bobby knows a lot about that, which is why as soon as I said that I was going to be Talking about typology, he immediately called it typography, and I will probably do the same thing during this sermon, but you know what I mean. Typology is something else. So I'm going to do something I don't often do, which is to tell you that the word typology comes from a Greek word. It's actually in the Bible. The word is tupas, and it's a verb that has to do with the act of stamping a coin. Okay, so typology is the study of what we call types in the Bible. And that's not the word type like we use in English to mean like a variety of something. It's the other word type that we also use in English as in like to type on a keyboard. Because a typewriter has, an old-timey physical typewriter, has a bunch of little blocks with the kind of the letters stamps on them. And they press the letter under the page and you push the key. They type the letter. Okay, and so that stamp is a type of the letter. And that's the way we're using this word in the study of typology. So like I said, it has to do with the stamp used to make a coin, right? So you've got a, a mold that's made of you know, iron or maybe even clay. It's not worth anything, really, but it stamps a soft piece of metal like gold, and that coin is the real thing. That coin is the valuable thing, but the stamp is just like the coin in its own way. It isn't the coin, but it is very much like it. And so that stamp is a type of the coin. And likewise, many things in Scripture are referred to as 
types of other things. And most importantly, some things are referred to as types of Jesus. So a type is a little bit more strong than just a symbol or an allegory. Jesus often teaches in parables, right? Where, you know, maybe like we read this morning, that prodigal son, the father symbolizes God and the son symbolizes us. And then the older son, which we didn't read about, who's unhappy about the attention the younger son's getting, maybe that represents people who are like attached to the faith but not true believers. But none of those, Jesus is not saying, none of those are the thing. The father isn't God. He's just symbolic of God. He's a story that teaches us something about God. And many of the themes that we've addressed here in Genesis so far are also kind of like that, right? You take the first theme of the garden, and there's a lot of imagery in Scripture about that, that garden kingdom. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the kingdom that God is bringing to all the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, will literally be a garden like Eden was. In some sense, it will be, but we also see in Revelation that God's final kingdom, the new Jerusalem, will be a city and not a garden. So the garden is thematic, but it's not a type. But some things that are referred to as types are even more explicitly symbolic, more intentionally representative of the thing which they represent. So in the New Testament, there are a few things that are explicitly called out with that word tupas in Greek, the word type. You may see it in your Bible, depending on translation. You may see it called type. You may also see it called uh, form or representation. There's like several words that are used to translate it. But um, the flood is a type of baptism, in fact. So we actually encountered that when we talked about salvation through judgment. So the flood is a type of baptism, showing how our sins are washed away and the new creation is more righteous. The curtain in the temple is a type of Jesus. It's what separates us from God, but in Jesus' body, when the curtain was torn, when Jesus' body was torn, God's presence and our presence could come together. So Jesus is, the curtain in the tabernacle is a type of Jesus. And the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, wherein an animal was sacrificed for the sins of Israel, is a type of the new covenant. But I am willing to argue, and there's debate around this, I'm not going to get into it, it's like a technical kind of academic debate, some people insist that only things that are called a type in the New Testament are types. So that's actually it, those three. I am willing to accept a broader definition, as are most other Bible scholars kind of in our, in our field. And I would like to open up the definition of a type to refer to more things which appear through authorial intent to be a type. Here's what I mean by that. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. Jesus and his disciples, and many of the people who wrote the New Testament, actually spoke a third language called Aramaic. And so what we have is, if you're familiar with the Hebrew Bible, and you're writing in Greek, you don't translate everything word for word exactly, because the languages don't have the same structure. You know, it's like translating from like Chinese to English. You don't just, there's no like, this word equals this word, this letter equals this letter. You have to make choices when you're translating. And so what we have here is authors in the Bible guided by the Holy Spirit, who are making choices in the way that they write to make their writing sound just like something in the Old Testament. And so I'm going to point that out as we go to try to, to try to make a little bit of a case. Again, there's a lot more sophistication that I could go into, but I just I want to tell you that I'm not just I'm not just saying that Joseph is a type of Christ. That's what I'm telling you in this sermon. I'm not just saying that because Joseph is similar to Jesus. I'm saying that because the authors in the New Testament are really, really trying to get me to think that Joseph and Jesus are a lot alike. And in fact, that Jesus is kind of a new and better Joseph through the language that they use. And so hopefully just for purposes of clarity, I'm going to give like another brief example of another type that we find in Scripture that's not maybe explicitly called out using that word, but that has a lot of clear authorial intent. We often would say that David, King David, is also a type of Christ. And the reason why we say that is, among a lot of other evidence, multiple places in the Psalms, Jesus is referred to as a ruler who will reign forever. And that exact phrase, even though the Psalms are in Hebrew, that exact phrase is present in multiple places in the New Testament epistles referring to Jesus. Again, there's like a lot of other evidence, but that's just, that's one way that the authors of the New Testament are telling us, okay, David isn't just like similar to Jesus. David isn't just like an allegory for Jesus. David, you should look at David 
And you should say, okay, I should expect Jesus to be like David in this way. And so when we read about David as a type of Christ, the reason why we study in this way, it isn't just to like make interesting connections. It's actually to teach us how to properly understand, let's say, David. And then also, from what we learn from David, how to properly understand Jesus as well. And so, again, just a very short, simple example with no real supporting evidence would be like David and Goliath. If we accept that David is a type of Christ, then when we read the story of David and Goliath, how do we interpret it? What does it mean? How does it affect me? And so it could be easy to read the story of David and Goliath and say, ah, cool, so God wants us to be like David and be like brave even when things are tough. But if we recognize that David is a type of Christ, David is really strongly associated with Jesus and vice versa, when we read David and Goliath instead, it forces us to say, well, okay, wait a minute. If David is like Jesus in this story, that, that means I'm not David. So which, which character am I? And what you find is that if, if David is like Jesus, uh, then I must be the cowardly, helpless Israelites, actually. And so the story of David and Goliath doesn't teach me to be strong and to be brave. It teaches me that I cannot defeat my sin, no matter how hard I try, and I need someone else to come in and save me. If I'm the Israelites and David is Jesus, that story takes on a very different meaning. And so that's the, the purpose of this study of typology. There are certain characters and certain things in the Bible which have such a strong association by the choice of the language that the authors use that we are forced to consider them strictly as a representation of Jesus. And that tells us then how to interpret the rest of that story. And so we are going to do that in the last several chapters of Genesis with the story of Joseph. So Genesis 36 ends with a toledoth, which you may remember, we've talked about that many times. That is a section that says, these are the generations of, and then it lists the generations of first the unchosen line that we're following, and then the, the chosen line. And these, these toledoths, these are the generation of sections, are how Moses, the author of Genesis, breaks up the book of Genesis into narrative sections. So the last Toledoth in Genesis is at the end of Genesis 36. And so Genesis 37 through 50 are all one narrative unit about Joseph. And so if I haven't made it clear thus far in the series, I, I want to assert that Genesis, the whole Bible, but Genesis is a work of literary genius, even in a secular sense, on par with any other of the greatest works of history. It is just as good as a book, as any other book out there. And on top of that, we know that it's inspired by God and is therefore much, much better. But the literature of the Bible and the literature of Genesis, when understood in its proper context, is glorious and beautiful. And so reading the Bible as literature, we are forced then to encounter Joseph and especially Joseph in such a long section as a percentage, right? 50 chapters, 37 through 50. That's a big chunk for just one guy. This story of Joseph is the culmination, okay, the big climactic ending to the story of Genesis and is therefore very important. And so Moses, in the way that he's, he's writing, because remember also Moses is writing, you know, hundreds of years after the life of Joseph. So Moses is compiling other information, existing works, written in oral accounts of history. Moses wasn't there for Genesis, but he is, he's compiling the works of Genesis. Moses compiles the works of Genesis and the life of Joseph in such a way that it demonstrates God's fulfillment of the promises that he has made all throughout Genesis. All these themes that are introduced, all these promises that are made, the first inklings of their fulfillment are present in Joseph. But Moses also writes in such a way, because again, Moses is writing after Joseph is long dead. Joseph obviously did not save all the earth from their sins. Moses knows that very well. So Moses is writing about Joseph to say, Joseph is kind of the fulfillment of all God's promises, but not the complete one. And so Moses is saying, even if the book of Genesis was all you had for the whole Bible, if that was the only Bible you had, you would still know, reading what Moses wants you to know, that Joseph is pointing to the fulfillment of all of these promises. So Joseph is the culmination of Genesis, but just the beginning of the complete fulfillment of all of these promises. Moses is saying, 
when you are looking for your Savior, look for someone who's like Joseph, but better. Look for someone who's similar to Joseph, but fulfills all the promises completely. And so let's go to the life of Joseph. Joseph is the second youngest son of Jacob. And remember that Jacob's name is changed at one point to Israel. So if you see Jacob or Israel, it switches back and forth. Same person. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. So Joseph's older brothers, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, are out pasturing the flock. And Joseph, 17, is said to be a boy among them. So he's like an apprentice, maybe, or a helper. He's, he's not in charge. He's not really watching the flocks. He's out there, you know, to help. He has a, a lower position as the younger son. And so this already is recalling many of the kind of older, younger brother themes that we've seen thus far, right? With Ishmael and Isaac and even Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau. There's, there's tension. Whenever there's the older and the younger brother introduced in Genesis, there's strife. And so Joseph is being introduced to us immediately in a, in a kind of an older, younger paradigm. And so, okay, we're anticipating. Here comes trouble. And Joseph brought back a bad report of them to their father. A typical younger brother, right? Now Israel, that's Jacob, Israel, their father, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And so you'll recall back again to Abraham referring to Isaac by that same epithet, the son of my old age. This brings back, again, more memories of favoritism shown to the younger son elsewhere in Genesis with Rachel showing favoritism to Jacob, for example, and even by, by God showing favoritism to Abel over Cain. And so that, that tension, that older, younger, that turmoil is still brewing. And Jacob made him, that's Jacob made Joseph, a robe of many colors. So this introduces a theme that I could have easily done as the theme for this sermon, which is clothing. There are four distinct episodes in the story of Joseph where clothing is either put on or removed, and those events all have great significance. I'm going to call them out when we get to them, but we're not going to go too deep into detail because that's not necessarily the main topic today. But clothing is very significant in Genesis and in Joseph in particular. But this robe, the word that's used there is only used one other time, and it's a robe that King David gives to one of his daughters. So we can assume the implication is that this is maybe, let's imagine, a long-sleeved robe, a robe that would be given to like a prince, someone who's not going to be doing a lot of manual labor because why would you spend a lot of money? Textiles were very expensive in this day and a robe of many colors means you had to make a lot of different pieces of cloth and cut them and stitch them together. It's a, whole, it's a significant display of wealth. You're not going to be doing a lot of work in this robe of many colors. You're not going to ruin it. It's a huge declaration of Joseph's special position in Jacob's eyes, that favoritism. <clears throat> and in fact, it probably even brings to mind pictures of maybe like a coronation robe, a robe that will be put on a king or a prince when they're entering their office. Moses wants us to be thinking about that promised one from Genesis 17, where God tells Abraham, I'll make you into nations and kings shall come to you. Now this, this incident where Joseph is, is dawned upon him, this robe of many colors, this is Moses saying, hey, remember that? Remember, think king. Maybe this is the one. But when his brothers, when Joseph's brothers, saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, that's sheaves of wheat, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So again, more strong callbacks to the brother versus brother theme. Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob. Moses' intent is clearly drawing us in this direction. Then Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. This, the wording here, calls us all the way back to creation in Genesis 1. God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, 
the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So now, now Moses, the author, has us thinking not only about the younger brother ruling the older brother, but now Joseph's dream is hinting at maybe Joseph ruling over the heavens. And in creation, the sun and the moon rule over the day and the night. They cast their light over all the rest of creation. There's an implication that Joseph is telling his brothers, I, I, I might think of myself as ruling over all creation. So maybe we're being led to think, as the reader, of that king who will reign over God's garden kingdom that covers all the earth, everything under the light of the sun, moon, and stars. But also, understandably, Joseph's brothers aren't necessarily on board with that just yet. When Joseph told his dream to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And this language that Jesus, um, that <coughs> Jacob uses, this is the first kind of indication in the text of this typology, of this, this really strict and direct line to Jesus. Because the language that's used here, where his brother and his father say, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall we bow down to the ground before you? A lot of this language is the same language that Luke uses in his gospel, in Luke chapter 22, to describe Jesus' interactions with the leaders of Judaism. And so Joseph here reveals his dream, but does not speak for himself. And likewise, Jesus is going to sort of give an act of authority in Luke 22, but then not really defend himself to the accusations of the chief priests. And so, again, I'll just refresh this one more time, and I'm not going to do this every time we get to, we get to New Testament writing, but... The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, so the story of Joseph, written in Hebrew. Jesus, when he was on earth, was speaking a language called Aramaic, and then the New Testament is written in Greek. So there's, there's translation choices that the authors are making, and they're using those choices to direct us to a point. And so Luke hears Jesus speak in Aramaic, and it's up to Luke. His choice is, how do I want to write this down in Greek? Right? How do I want to translate what Jesus said into Greek? And Luke specifically chooses to use language that sounds a lot like this language in Genesis about Joseph. And so in Luke 22, when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, so the, the elders, right? It kind of even sounds like Jesus is maybe being judged by like the firstborn of Israel, you could say. And they led him away to their council. This is Jesus. They led Jesus away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, that is, if you are the, the chosen one, the Messiah, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm going to be set to rule over all creation. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, well, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So like Joseph... Jesus provides as justification for his claim to authority some basic facts. Joseph says, look, I just dreamed this dream. Here's the way it is. But then he lets the elders' rhetorical questions speak for themselves. right? So Joseph's brothers and his father, they both ask rhetorical questions. They're not literally asking, oh, Joseph, do you think we should bow down to you? No, no, no. They're saying, oh, really, Joseph? So you think we should bow down to you? And in the same way, the elders here are saying, oh, are, are, you the, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? They're not asking Jesus, Jesus, are you the Son of God? No, the elders are saying, oh, please, yeah, you know, tell me that you're the Son of God. You know, admit to it. You tell me that you think you're the Son of God. And Jesus' answer is hilarious. He says, I mean, you know, your word's not mine, basically. But this makes me think of Jesus in terms of Joseph, in terms of that fulfillment of kingly prophecy. And it seems like Joseph and Jesus are both also saying to their accusers, hey, look, I just told you the facts. And if that makes you think of me in terms of kingly fulfillment of prophecy, that's on you. I'm not telling you that I'm your king. I'm showing you. And if you think that, maybe it's true. And so back to Joseph. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And that kept the saying in mind, exact same phrase, as Luke writes in Luke chapter 2, when Mary finds out that she is 
going to be pregnant with Jesus, Mary treasured these things up in her heart. Same phrase. Kept in mind, treasured in heart. Same phrase. So again, that, it's that linguistic intent that's pushing us in this direction. All right, so we're back to Joseph. They, his brothers, saw him from afar. So this is later. They're out in the fields. Joseph comes to, I don't know, check on them or give them instructions from Jacob. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They, that's Joseph's brothers, said to one another, Here comes that dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. <clears throat> so it doesn't tell us which brothers. There's 11 brothers that are out here. Well, probably 10, because Benjamin's probably at home. Out in the fields, we're not sure which ones are conspiring to kill him, but Reuben, the eldest, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. So Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And Reuben said that, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So first it seems like Reuben, again, the oldest brother, who should be sort of a leader among his brothers, is saying, Whoa, let's not kill Joseph. That's wrong. But actually what Reuben is saying is, Whoa, let's not kill Joseph. Throw him into the pit, and then I'll pretend to save him and get credit for it. And then maybe Jacob will love me instead of Joseph. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. So then we're back to the clothing again. Jo uh, Joseph's robe, that symbol of his chosenness, that symbol of his maybe kingship and his authority, is stripped from him. And so not only is that symbol removed, but also being stripped and, and nakedness in general in the Bible is, is shameful. When things are naked, they're exposed. They, the, their, their deeds are found out. They're helpless. They're defenseless. They, they have nothing to protect them. They are simply at the mercy of whoever has their clothes. So to be naked is to be ashamed, to be cast down. <clears throat> and we're back to these linguistic comparisons again. In Luke 20, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, By what authority do you do these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? So it sounds, again, it's like the brothers. They're asking, they're asking Joseph, you know, Who do you think you are, dreamer? And again, the elders, the chief priests, they say to Jesus, Who are you? Jesus Again, respond in which there's a landowner with wicked tenants. And the landowner is trying to get his money from the tenants, and then he's trying to get rid of the tenants, and he starts sending his servants to the tenants to either collect the rent or to, to kick them out. And the tenants keep killing the servants. And so finally, the landowner sends his son. He says, okay, well, if you didn't take my servants seriously, I'm going to send my son, and then you'll have to listen. And the tenants, the wicked tenants in Jesus' parable, say, Come now, let us kill him. The exact same words as the brothers who say of Joseph, Come now, let us kill him. And that's exactly what the brothers did. They didn't kill Joseph, per se, but they threw Joseph into a pit while they decided what to do with him. And often elsewhere in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, David uses it extensively, the pit is a metaphor for death, the grave, the underworld. And so it is as if Joseph has symbolically been killed. He's been stripped of his glory, he's been ashamed, he's been made helpless, and he is symbolically cast into a grave. But Judah, the fourthborn, leaps into action. And he's going to start to take a much more prominent role in this story. Judah says, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let our hand not be upon him. For he is our own brother, our own flesh. So Judah, as he enters the story, is revealed to have a couple of characteristics that are going to come up again later. First of all, Judah's opportunistic. He literally says, Why would we kill Joseph for free when we could sell him for money? And then two, Judah is very concerned with the appearance of righteousness and his own conscience. He says, you know, if we kill him, his blood is going to be on our hands. But if we don't technically kill him, if we only sell him into slavery to be gone forever, then, you know, I don't have to deal with the guilt of being a murderer. It's not a great look for Judah, but he'll come up again. And by the way, Judah sells Joseph for 20 
shekels of silver. And then a few thousand years later, Judas will sell Jesus for 30 shekels of silver. Once again, Jesus is like Joseph, but better. So the boys take Joseph's robe, they dip it in the blood of an animal that has been slaughtered, same word as sacrificed, but this is a kind of perverted sacrifice wherein the brothers are using the dead animal to deceive Jacob and maybe even to assuage their guilt a little bit. And so Jacob, upon hearing the report and seeing the coat, he weeps and refuses to be comforted at the loss of his beloved son. And Genesis chapter 37 concludes, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. That's Joseph. They had sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And so we're going to take a detour now away from Joseph in chapter 38 to look in on Judah. I know we said this is mostly about Joseph, but Judah is going to be important later. So first, Judah marries a Canaanite woman, which he's not supposed to do, and then she bears him three sons. The first two sons are wicked for reasons that we won't get into today because we're having to skip over a bunch of stuff. But what you need to know is this. Judah's first son married a woman named Tamar. might remember her from two weeks ago. But that son, that eldest son, dies before giving Tamar any children. The legal custom of the day was that the next son would then marry the wife of the older son so as to carry on that firstborn line. But the next son also shirked his responsibility, and so God put him to death. So that's first two sons dead. Judah's third son is too young to be married. Judah promises Tamar, well, when he's old enough, I'll give him to you in marriage. But then he doesn't actually come through on his promise. <clears throat> so here's where things start to get really ugly for Judah. Tamar correctly believes that she is entitled to a son from the line of Judah. So she takes it upon herself to dress like a prostitute and coincidentally meet Judah in his travels. So Judah falls for it without ever realizing Tamar's identity. He doesn't have any means to pay her for services rendered, and so he promises that he will give her a goat from his flocks. But she says, well, how do I know you're going to come through? You're just some random guy. So Judah says, well, fine. Take my signet ring and my belt and my staff, and then I'll send you the goat. So that's like you know, if you forgot your money at a restaurant, you're like, well, I'll leave my driver's license with you so that you know that I'll come back, right? So Judah's signet ring is like his identity almost. And so Judah does try to go back to pay, but he can't find her because, again, this is Tamar in disguise. She got what she wanted and is gone. And he doesn't want to embarrass himself by wandering all around town asking if anyone's seen a prostitute walking around with his staff and signet ring recently. So he just says, I guess we'll leave it. And remember that Judah all along has no idea who this is. Tamar, as it turns out, is indeed pregnant with twins. And when she begins to show, Judah is indignant Someone in my household would do such a thing? How, how dare you embarrass me? And so Judah demands that Tamar be put to death. And at this point, Tamar produces that signet and cord and staff. And now the whole situation is clear. So let's make a few more observations about Judah, like we did before. He's selfish, again, and opportunistic, again. Seems to be a bad father. He did not teach his sons how to live right. He went back on his promise to Tamar, even though she's part of his household, part of his family, and he's supposed to be responsible for her. Also, let's note that Tamar went to this particular intersection all dressed up just once. She knew. She knew Judah would fall for it. He's got a reputation, it seems. And then after his evil deed against Tamar, he's too embarrassed and concerned with appearances to go and find her to properly pay. And then when Tamar appears to be the wicked one, and let's be clear, Tamar's choice, also sinful, but when Tamar appears to be the wicked one, he's very quick to demand the harshest penalty. He's very concerned with his appearance of righteousness, even though he knows he's using it as cover for his own sins. But when Judah is confronted with this indisputable evidence of his own depravity, he says, speaking of Tamar, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. I think at this moment, for reasons that I'll defend more later, I think right here... Judah has a change of heart. I might even go so far as to say, I think that Judah's heart might have been regenerated and Judah might have become saved right at this moment. Because from here on out, he's a totally different man. At the very least, this incident is the beginning of a spiritual journey that reshapes him greatly before he comes up again in the story. So I want you to just hold on to this depiction of Judah while we proceed. Judah was a selfish, greedy man concerned only with the appearance of righteousness, but he is transformed when confronted with his own guilt. 
And we're going to see what fruit is borne out by that transformation. So back to Joseph. Genesis 39, we return to Egypt. A servant of Potiphar, Joseph, guided by the Lord, is wildly successful. Potiphar is so pleased with Joseph that he puts him in charge of his entire household, second in command in the household of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. But Potiphar's wife starts to make repeated advances on Joseph. Let's read it and notice some more patterns, calls back to earlier things in Genesis. After a time, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to her, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you, because you are his wife. How can I then do this great wickedness and sin against God? And this sounds to me a lot like how God dealt with Adam and Eve in the garden with one big difference, which is that here, Joseph resists him. After all, God gave Adam everything in the garden, except for one thing, the tree, and that one thing is what Adam was tempted to take. Potiphar gave Joseph everything in the house except one thing, and unlike Adam, even under the most explicit temptation, Joseph says, I can't do that. I can't take that one thing that my master has held back from me, because I respect God too much. Moses is hinting to us that Joseph is like a new and better Adam. And that should really ring a bell because I've talked about a new and better Adam almost every sermon in this series. Moses says, when you look for your Savior, look for someone who's like Joseph in the sense that Joseph is better than Adam. And then in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, we find, for example, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And in many other places... Jesus is referred to as a better, superior version of Adam, even a counterpart of Adam. Just like Joseph is better than Adam, Jesus is better than Adam and better than Joseph too. But in spite of Joseph's righteousness, Potiphar's wife entraps him. She propositions him again, but this time there's no one else around. And the only way Joseph can flee sin is to literally run away. At this point, I would just like to say, I've spent a lot of time in this series talking about how Genesis is meant to introduce all of these themes and start to unfold God's plan for redemption, culminating in Jesus, and how everything in Genesis is pointing to Him. And I hope that you agree with me that that's true, and that's a good way to read Genesis. And so it would be sloppy for me then to get up here and say that, you know, the big lesson to be learned from Joseph's story is to flee sexual immorality. But you would also have to be willfully ignorant to not see that Moses is clearly contrasting Judah in chapter 37, wandering around and immediately leaping into the arms of a prostitute with no persuasion at all, versus Joseph in the very next chapter, who repeatedly and firmly resists temptation, even with confronted with the perfect opportunity. So it is certainly not wrong to read this and come away thinking, you know, sometimes when I'm confronted with temptation, I should just leave. That's good advice, and it's not wrong to say, be like Joseph. Leave the room. Find a different place to be, if that's what's going to keep you from sinning. But there's so much more. There's so much more that can be learned from Joseph. It is good to admire Joseph, but he's only worth admiring because Joseph is like Jesus, who is the one who's worth admiring. So anyway, Joseph runs away from Mrs. Potiphar, but she snatches his robe. Now, if we think back to Joseph's previous clothing-related incidents, this loss of clothing should sound ominous. So she falsely accuses him. She says, look, he came on to me, and I have his robe. It's proof, again, a counterpart to Judah. Judah, who willfully gave away his proof, Joseph's was stolen from him unjustly. And once again, Joseph is stripped naked and cast into the pit, this time the deepest dungeon in all of Egypt, Pharaoh's own dungeon. But once again, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, Joseph was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so while Joseph is in prison, he meets two of Pharaoh's ex-servants. Pharaoh has become angry with his baker and his cupbearer. Those sound like menial tasks. They're actually very high-ranking positions. These are the people who are in charge of Pharaoh's very own food and drink. Like if you're in charge of Pharaoh's cup, 
you have a lot of authority, like hiring and firing, because you're tasting it first. So you're in charge of a lot of that supply chain. These are important, significant positions. These two servants have been cast into prison. Joseph meets them, and they both have dreams. And they say, well, Joseph, since you're so great at everything, can you interpret our dreams? And so Joseph does. He says, one servant, the cupbearer, you'll be restored to your position in three days, but the other one, the baker, you'll be put to death in three days. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, he says, remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing wrong that they should have put me into this pit. But the servant, of course, forgot Jesus. This brings to mind yet another tale in the Gospel of Luke of an innocent man who was condemned along with two others, one of whom is restored and the other isn't. And the reason that comes to mind, of course, isn't just because I thought of it, but it's because it was written as a way to make it come to my mind. In Luke 23, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. This is Jesus on the cross, a criminal on either side. One of the criminals said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, that, that criminal who believed in Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And praise God that unlike Pharaoh's servant, Jesus does indeed remember. Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. But Joseph remains in prison. Two more years pass by, but now Pharaoh is the one with the mysterious dream. He calls on all of his mystics and wise men, but none of them can answer. The cupbearer says, hey, I remember somebody. I remember somebody who knows a thing about dreams. And so Joseph comes and explains that Pharaoh's dream foretells that in all the world there will be seven incredibly plentiful years of harvest, starting right now. But then the next seven years will be desperate famine. And Joseph recommends a plan of taxation and storehousing during these seven years of plenty that will allow Pharaoh to provide food for all of his subjects and all the surrounding lands during those years of famine. Pharaoh realizes that Joseph is correct and guided by God, and so in Genesis 41, Pharaoh says, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my whole house. All my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made Joseph to ride in his second chariot. So a couple of things here. First, a repeat of the pattern. Joseph is cast into the pit. He remains faithful to God while he's there and is returned to his exalted status. But secondly, and more interestingly, we see clothing again. Joseph is given fine linen clothes and jewelry to represent his new station. So let me pause here and show you another connection to Jesus. This is where I would have landed had I decided to go with the theme of clothing. But let's observe the pattern of clothing in Joseph's story. Joseph is clothed and exalted, then stripped and lowered, then stripped again and lowered again, and then clothed and exalted again. So clothed, naked, naked, clothed. Remember from last week, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And that, that last week we determined that firstborn does not mean in this case that Jesus was created, but rather it means that Jesus was above all things, in authority, a position of preeminence above all creation. It's almost as if you could say Jesus was wearing a glorious royal robe to designate himself as the best and beloved over all creation. Then we read in Hebrews 2, which is a quote of Psalm 8, what we read in our call to worship today, that Jesus was, for a time, made a little lower than the angels, which is how Psalms refers to mankind. So Jesus was made lower. Jesus was above the angels when he was in heaven. He was preeminent over all creation. He, in fact, helped to create the angels. But then he's made lower, born naked as a baby here on earth. So Jesus is clothed. Then he's lowered and made naked. A huge step down for God to come down from his position of glory to earth. It's not that he was any less God, but, and just like, it was not that he was any 
blessed God, just like Joseph in the pit was not any less the chosen son, but he decreased his own honor to come down to us. And then again, at the end of his life, Jesus is stripped, killed in the most humiliating manner, and put into the pit, the grave. So Jesus is clothed in glory. He is stripped naked and lowered. He is stripped naked again and lowered again. And then Jesus rises from the dead. He comes up out of the pit. He went up out of the earth, back up to the glories of heaven, where he currently sits at the right hand of God, the most exalted seat of all. Surely he is this day wearing the most glorious robes that represent his most glorious honor. Just like Joseph was clothed and exalted and then stripped and lowered and then stripped and lowered and then clothed and exalted, Jesus too was clothed and exalted, then stripped and lowered and stripped and lowered and then clothed and exalted to the highest position in all the land. And just to drive the point home one more time, Moses tells us in Genesis, Joseph was 30 years old when he began his service to Pharaoh. And who else? Who else was 30 years old when he began his teaching? Of course, Jesus. And now the events of Pharaoh's dream come to pass. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And thanks to Joseph's management and his blessing from God, Pharaoh has plenty of grain stored up to feed all of Egypt, and so much left over that he can sell it to people from other lands. And these people from other lands include certain brothers of Joseph, the sons of Jacob. Now, when Joseph's brothers arrive in Genesis 42, Joseph recognizes them right away, but they don't recognize him. Because remember, he was 17, now he's 30. It seems that Joseph, in his heart, wants to reconcile with them. But before he does so, he puts them through a series of ordeals. Seemingly, he wants to test whether or not they have actually changed since they last met. And I think that's understandable. I think that's understandable. We often have a heart to reconcile with those who were once close to us, but we also recognize that if nothing's changed, that might not be an option. So Joseph says, I want to be close to my family again, but let's see what they're made of. So right off the bat, Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. Like maybe they're coming here to try to figure out how much grain Egypt actually has so that maybe whatever nation they're spying for can launch some kind of attack. He uses the phrase, they have come to see the nakedness of the land. And so following that clothing motif, they're coming to see the emptiness or the shame of Egypt. They're trying to see whether or not Egypt is also poor during this famine. At least that's what Joseph is accusing them of doing. But they say, no, no, Joseph, we're not from another nation. We're, we're, just, we're just a group of brothers. We're here on behalf of our father. We need food. And Joseph already knows this, of course. And so he says, okay, fine. I will sell you grain, but I'm still suspicious. So... I want you to prove that your story is true. You told me that you have another younger brother at home with your father, so I'm going to sell you this grain, but in order to show me that you're telling the truth, you need to bring your youngest brother back next time so that I can see whether or not this story adds up. And in the meantime, I want you to leave one of you here as security for this deal. So what's Joseph doing? I think that Joseph is delivering up to the brothers another opportunity to commit that exact same sin that they committed against him. I mean, basically what he's saying is, whatever brother you leave behind, I'm I'm selling you the grain, and you're leaving a brother behind, so you can just leave him. You can take your grain and go. You You don't have to come back. And so will they take that opportunity again to sell their brother? How easy would it be for the brothers, they leave Simeon behind, to go back to their father and say, yeah, Simeon died on the journey. You know, it was dangerous out there. Or, or the Egyptians, they, you know, they have all the power. They demanded that he stay as a slave. What could we do? Jacob has no way to verify that. They live really far away. There's no phones. I mean, it would be really easy to take this deal. And that whole incident makes Joseph's brothers think back to a little secret that they've been harboring for the last 13 years. His brothers, they said to one another, Oh, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Yeah, they remember. Joseph's little test was designed to make them remember what they did, and they do. So they agree. They leave Simeon behind. And on the way back, something interesting happens. Remember, this is a long journey. So, you know, maybe like weeks of travel. Huge sacks of grain, enough to feed their whole household for years. 
At a way station on the way back, they stop for the day and they discover that their bags are full, not only of the grain which they bought, but also all of the money that they used to buy it is back in the bags. So now that Egyptian ruler is going to think, not only are we spies, but we also somehow swindled him out of his money. And now they've promised that they're only going to return with Benjamin, the youngest brother, and they think that they're going to bring Benjamin back so that they can all get probably thrown in jail for stealing money from the Egyptians. They arrive back at Jacob's dwelling place with the grain and the money, but of course short one brother, and they relay the story to Jacob, who does not, under any circumstances, want to let Benjamin return. And at this point, Reuben, the oldest brother, who has generally been a loser up until this point, continues to do so in his supposed role as the leader. He says to Jacob, well, let me take Benjamin back next time, and if Benjamin doesn't return, then you can kill my sons to make it even. Why would that be convincing? Reuben says, oh, Jacob, trust your son to me. After all, look at how well I take care of my own sons. Jacob is not impressed and refuses, which means Simeon remains in Egypt. But two more years pass, and they run out of grain. Remember, they don't know it's a seven-year famine. Two years go by. They thought it would be enough. It's not. So Jacob, maybe desperate, says, okay, you have to go back to Egypt. Now let's go back to Judah. Remember Judah? Greedy, scheming, selfish, immoral, hypocritical Judah? Remember how I said that he seems like a changed man starting here? So Judah steps up. He's the fourth son. Reuben, not just here but several times, the oldest, has proven himself to be generally useless. And actually when Jacob blesses his sons on his deathbed, he basically says as much. But Reuben, the fourthborn, or Judah, the fourthborn, he steps up to the plate. He says, Father, remember that they will not see us unless we bring Benjamin. Let me take Benjamin under my care, and if Benjamin does not return, my life for his. Who is this guy? Who is this responsible and selfless leader of his brothers? It doesn't seem like the Judah that we remember from before. So to this, Jacob agrees. And they pack up, this time with double money, to try to make up for last time when they met, a pile of gifts, and most importantly, with Benjamin. And they return to Egypt. Joseph again sees them coming. He meets them and decides to test them once more. He sits them all in his dining room in birth order, meaning that the oldest is sat in the place of honor. But then when the food comes out, he gives Benjamin, the youngest, special, beloved, favorite son, a five-fold portion of food. Again, Joseph is stirring up his brothers. You remember, remember how much you hated it when your youngest brother got that special treatment? Well, it's happening again. I put you all in firstborn order, and then I gave the youngest son fivefold. What are you going to do, brothers? Are you going to do it again? Are you going to sell Benjamin out again? And so after this, they leave, and Joseph devises one final test. He fills their sacks with grains, he sneaks the money back in, and he also puts his own silver cup, a symbol of his household, in Benjamin's sack. The brothers leave, they get a little ways off, and Joseph sends men after them accusing them of stealing. They look in the sacks and they find the money, and in Benjamin's sack they find the cup. So they all come back to Egypt. Joseph meets them again and demands that this supposed thief, Benjamin, stay as his prisoner and slave. But he's generous. The rest of you can go. So once again, the opportunity to sell out your youngest son, the one that you can't stand, for your own benefit. But Judah is now a man of integrity. I don't know if Judah actually thinks Benjamin is guilty or maybe Judah suspects foul play. But either way, Judah steps up and he says, My father loves Benjamin and misses him dearly because he is the brother of his other lost son. Now Benjamin and Joseph had the same mother. Take me as your prisoner instead and let Benjamin go home. So Judah is free of that jealousy that he had against Joseph. And he honors his promise to Jacob, even though he could easily dodge it again to his own benefit. And it is at this point, seeing Judah's true repentance and change of heart, that Joseph finally breaks down. He can't take it any longer and reveals himself to his brothers. In Genesis 45, Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me. So they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, because God sent me here before you to preserve your life. For the famine has been in this land for two years, and yet there are five years more in which there will be no harvest. 
And God sent me before you to provide for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. The brothers rush home to Jacob. They pack up their entire household and they return to Egypt altogether. Due to Joseph's honored position, the Israelites are given choice lands. They have enough food and land to thrive throughout the whole famine. And 17 years after arriving in Egypt, Jacob finally dies. Before his death, he blesses his sons, counting Joseph's sons as his own. He gives the birthright to Joseph's line, but he reserves a mighty blessing for Judah, whose line will sit on the throne forever, Jacob says. After jo- Jacob's death, the sons are once more afraid that now that Jacob is gone, Joseph is no longer under any fatherly compulsion to, re- to respect Jacob, and now he will take his chance to have revenge. So they go to beg mercy of Joseph, reminding him of Jacob's wishes. And the book of Genesis ends with this. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And the book of Genesis closes with Joseph's death. So here's the application that I want you to consider today. First, I want you to see that Joseph is a type of Christ. The authors of Joseph's life and of Jesus' life, inspired by God, make it clear. I want to build up in your heart that anticipation that would have been in the heart of those faithful Israelites when they read about Joseph. I can't wait for our Savior to come. He's going to be like Joseph, but so much better. Secondly, because of that, I want you to rightly position yourself in Joseph's story. So think back to David and Goliath. If David is Jesus, that makes you the Israelites. So if Joseph in this story is Jesus, who are you? Who are we? The brothers. Let me read from Isaiah, and I want you to hear how many similarities there are between this passage in Isaiah and Joseph's life. Those of us who rightly read Joseph should see this connection clearly. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before his shearers are silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. But he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I shall divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Does that not sound a lot like Joseph's life? And yet that is one of the most classic passages in the Bible that we consider to be prophetic of Jesus. God meant the evil that Joseph's brothers committed against him to accomplish the good of saving them and all of those nations. But if Jesus is like Joseph and we are like his brothers, does that not imply that like Joseph's brothers threw him into the pit, are we the ones who killed Jesus? Isaiah 5 says, just before that passage we read, He has borne our grief. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And 1 Peter 2 says it again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So if we rightly read Joseph like Jesus, we rightly read ourselves like his brothers, we rightly understand our sins put him in that pit. Our sins put Jesus in that grave. But thirdly, I want you to look at Judah. How do you respond rightly to your brother? that you have cast into the pit. Because perhaps even now your heart is trying to justify, surely my sins didn't kill Jesus. They're just one among many. My brothers also, they wanted to kill him. 
I, I only wanted to sell him, right? That's better. My sins against God maybe aren't that bad. But brothers and sisters, consider your sins. Think of your besetting sins. What, what are those sins that you commit against God that you know? You know what you struggle with. You know what you do. Are you making little of them? Judah sold his brother into slavery. He abandoned his daughter-in-law, then accidentally slept with her because he thought that she was only a prostitute. He was a shameless sinner. He didn't even really try to hide it, except insofar as he tried to keep his reputation in good standing. And Paul says, such were some of you. Who among us has not hated his brother? Well, Jesus says that's no different than murder, just like Judah. Who among us has not lusted after what is not ours, sex or money or power? Jesus says that's no different than adultery, just like Judah. Who among us is more righteous than Judah was? None. But who among us is willing to follow in Judah's footsteps? When Judah is confronted with his sins, when that signet ring comes out, or when Joseph's test makes him remember his sins, what does Judah do? Back in Genesis 38, Judah demanded that Tamar be punished for her sins because it was so visible. She was pregnant after all. But when it comes out, when Judah is brought face to face with the weight of his own sin, he says, no, she is more righteous than I. He cannot hide a sin anymore. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't deny it. He says, it was me. I'm the man. I'm the sinner. Brothers and sisters, don't try to hide your sin. Tamar already knew it was Judah. Joseph already knew it was Judah. Jesus already knows it was you. So instead of trying to scheme and justify and cope, repent instead. Say, I did it. I have sinned. And like Judah, after he repented, he acted it out. He took responsibility for Tamar's sons. One of those sons carried the line to Jesus. He took responsibility for Joseph's death by putting his own life on the line for Benjamin. This is a man whose heart has been changed to be repentant. He took ownership of his sin, he repented of his sin, and then he returned to Joseph. And by Joseph, Judah and all his family were saved from famine. Return to Jesus. And by Jesus, be saved from famine. So Joseph is like Jesus. Jesus has come down from his place on high and took on flesh. He lowered himself on our account. He was put to death on our account, naked on the cross and in the grave on our account, bearing the punishment and the shamefulness that ought to come from your sins and Judah's. And then Jesus returned to life and to glory, clothed in the greatest garment of all, righteousness. So that's your choice today. Whether you're a Christian or not, you can run from your sins, you can hide from them, you can downplay them, you can leave the evidence of your sin where you think no one can find it, or you can repent and return to the Lord. Confess your sins, lay them at the feet of Jesus, for like Joseph, God, even through your evil deeds against him, has put Jesus in a place of power to save you. Like we read in our confession this morning, even now, declares the Lord, even in spite of all of your sins, even in spite of all of Judah's sins, return to me. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. And so then hear these last words from the mouth of Joseph. And we know that Joseph here speaks for Jesus too, on our behalf. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Please pray with me. God, thank you for this beautiful book that you have given us to enjoy, but so much more than that, that you have given us to learn about who you are and what you've done. Thank you for Joseph, a man more righteous than Adam, a man who fled from sin, a man who, even though he was oppressed by no fault of his own, that he bore those sins against him for the salvation of many people. But God, so much more than we are grateful for Joseph, we are grateful for the one to whom Joseph points for Jesus. Jesus was oppressed, killed, by no fault of his own, stripped naked, cast down into the pit. And yet what we meant for evil, you have meant for good. Because it is by that wickedness that we have done to him 
that we can be saved. Lord, drag our hearts, kicking and screaming if need be, to repentance. Let us not hide our sins. Let us not justify our sins. Let us confess them to you. Let us turn away from them like Judah did and become a new man so that Jesus can save us. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Show.